We went we went to the live stream, but I did not hit the magic button that says record. So now now we are actually officially recording. Ooh. Yeah. It's fancy. Nice. Thanks for the rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Welcome to Montreal Sauce, uh, where we talk about whatever we like because we make the rules and you have to listen. Um, my name is Chris and with me is Paul. Say hello, Paul. Hello, Paul. I knew that was coming. Oh. <laughs> All right. And today we have a guest with us. Uh, I uh, met this person amazingly. It's a crazy story, but again, through uh, PMOG or the Nethernet, um, it's like my go-to for awesome people. So... Uh, um, I'm just going to go ahead and follow the tradition that we've established with our fine show and let Tony introduce himself. Perfect. So, so, so Tony, tell everybody about yourself. What do you sure. do? My pleasure. So my name is Tony Starkeys. I am an attorney. I live in Chicago, Illinois. Um, and when I'm not lawyering, uh, I am generally playing video games or hacking something. So... I was just I was just looking at my hands. They're covered in spray paint because I just took apart my OG Game Boy and I'm giving it a paint job. So we'll see how that turns out. But um, yeah, that's the high level overview. Um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, no problem. We're excited. Yeah, so you're uh, you're just giving the. Uh the original uh, Game Boy uh, paint job, or uh, have you done something under the hood as well? Um, I I biverted the LCD display, which means you invert it twice, um, and it increases the contrast dramatically. So, because the original screen is kind of washed out, it's hard to see. I'm installing a backlight, and I might install like a left and right stereo out in it too, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do that yet. But, uh, that that sounds really cool. Yeah, I haven't done an electronics project in a long time, so it looked like a fun one to get my hands dirty with. Um, you said PMO was your go-to place to find guests. Who else have you had on? Um, I actually, uh, not too long ago, we had in uh, Justin Hall, actually. Oh, no way. Yeah, so he, I asked him if he'd like to be on, and he came on, and it, it was a really uh, eye-opening show, a good show. That's great. Yeah, he's such an interesting person. I was reading his, he wrote like a post-mortem of the game. And it was, I mean, it was really insightful. It's stuff that I totally didn't know was going on, um, even though I was living it. But yeah, I don't know what it was about that environment that attracted like people. I don't know. It attracted a certain breed, I think. Um, yeah, that particular game, it, it just seemed to, for whatever reason, attract almost a certain like age group too, you know, like it, yeah. it seemed like everybody was within this sort of, you know, age and it wasn't, I mean, we did have some younger folks, but they all, all seemed very mature for their age too. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I feel like it attracted like people who are into alternate reality games who in my experience tend to be fun to hang out with and creative. It attracted like librarian types It attracted, I don't know, just good people all around. I think the other thing about that game, to your alternate reality point, it was the fact that since it was like in the browser and you were playing essentially when you were browsing, it meant that to like seek out the sort of connections that we all have now, 
we had to do that in another forum, i.e. the actual game forum or chat, you know? Right. So it wasn't sort of like in-game play where we did a lot of socializing. It was sort of outside the game because you were sort of always playing the game. Right. The game was just kind of like the juice bar that we hung out in. Um, But, yeah, it it was a good time. I met a lot of cool people I keep in touch with, five or six of them still, so... Yeah, same for me. In fact, uh, I was going to mention, too, back during the game days, uh, you yourself had a podcast called uh, Tubanauts, didn't you? I sure did, um, with some of my best friends who played the game. Um, I think we had like 15 episodes. It wasn't a ton, but it was fun. It was a good time. Um, We were also kind of like on the very, like, bleeding edge of like when chiptunes became popular. And we had, we always incorporate a lot of chiptune into the podcast, and now you hear it everywhere. You hear it in rap songs, but back then it wasn't <laughs> super common. Um, I feel bad we're leaving you out, Paul. Um, do you play anything? Have you played any good games recently? Uh, well, um, th- that depends uh, on if you like things that are pretty much on the Nintendo. I'm mostly a console uh, gamer and almost exclusively on uh, on Nintendo consoles. Um, I have played uh, Mar- the latest Mario Kart, which I think is amazing. It's certainly pretty. Um, <laughs> I've had my face buried in the Smash Brothers demo for 3DS. Oh, nice, nice. Do you guys have that yet? Is it like a North American thing, or is it a United States thing? That I am not sure. Um, I think I think we have that out now. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, we'll have to play online. Yeah, the two of you are very close. Paul is in Michigan. I'm the only one stuck. I mean, loving <laughs> oh, Canada. Oh, I thought you were all up in like the Yukon or something. Okay. No, no. The name was misleading. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's super misleading because neither of us is actually even in Montreal. But uh... yeah. <laughs> I'm actually touring some possible weekend houses in Michigan this weekend. Oh yeah, where where yeah. are you uh, exploring? In the Berrien County, I'm in Chicago, so it's like an hour drive to Sawyer and Buchanan and Niles. So yep. I'm yep. looking over there. Nice, super nice. Yeah, I'm just a little ways north of there. I'm in the Grand Rapids area. Oh, cool. Yeah, and we go to Saugatuck all the time too. So, oh yeah, I'm uh, extremely familiar with Saugatuck. Yeah, yeah, I love Saugatuck. That's so nice. Oh, it is. It's great. I mean, the first time I ever went there, I think I was young, but then when I returned as an adult, I went to the film festival, and it's always a fun story because here I go with, like, two of my friends, or maybe there was four of us, including, like, uh, their dates or whatever, and we just... We were like there to go to the film festival and we probably saw like three films and just hung out in the town the whole entire day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that next film is starting, but uh, hey, let's go over here. This is cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's ride the chain ferry instead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And climb the giant dune because we need more activities. <laughs> that's I love that dune. I've taken some really good pictures on top of it, and that hike is it's like a it's a lot of steps, but the view is totally worth it. Yeah, I agree. It definitely uh, winded me, though. That was for sure. Yeah. Um. Well, should we move on to uh, 
something to engage the listeners who haven't seen Beautiful Sagatuck yet? <laughs> sure. I suppose. I, I guess. <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited that you're uh, modding your Game Boy. That's um, that's really sweet. Like I always uh, look at projects like this online, and I've done like a little bit of like you know tweaking and soldering in my uh, youth. But every time I get close to like modding something as I'm older, I'm like, I only have one of these. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, there's a near endless supply of Game Boys on Amazon and eBay. So Yeah, there you go. Um, so true. If I f*** this one up, I guess I'll just <laughs> drop 20 bucks and try again. Yeah. That's, uh, that's true. Um, so are you doing that like in home or are you using, I think you were headed, like you were t- talking about before that you will often go to the hackerspace in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a member of pumping station one. Um, it's the country's best hackerspace. That's just my opinion. It's not an objective fact. Um, it's beautiful. It's huge. It's like 6,000 square feet. There's, there's like a metalworking like area, woodworking, electronics, there's like a CNC area with 3D printers and laser cutters. There's a textile lab. There's knitting machines and uh, like industrial sewing machines. And then there's like an electronics area that has really nice soldering stations and free components. Like you, you know, just drop some money in the in the bin if you take something. But they have almost everything that that you need for a small project. So and then if you need help with something, there's always someone who's happy to lend a hand. So. It's a super cool place, and it's also like you can like paint, and there's good ventilation. Um, there's a lot of safety gear, so it's a it's a really great place. If if you there's a hacker space in your local uh, community or municipality, I would urge you to check it out. Um, you'll meet some cool people there, especially if you if you listen to this podcast. I feel like you'll get along with people at hacker spaces, but. <laughs> um, but check it out, um, especially if we're in Chicago. We actually a second one just opened on the south side. So, and our local, our main library just got laser cutters and three D printers for public use. So, it's pretty cool. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, I'm in Edmonton now because I moved from Grand Rapids, and uh, and so I just learned that myself that the local library has a three D printer. So I. Uh, I actually just, um, you know, grabbed something from Thingverse that I actually wanted to print and just going to try it out. But it was like, like super cheap, you know, like I think when I get done with this little uh, stand that that I'm having made, I'm going to like have to pay like 48 cents or something. That's nice. And then um, there is, I've done the research because I was kind of uh, looking um, for, when I was looking for like, you know, somewhere to play with 3D printers, um, I tried uh, looking, and there is a hackerspace here in Edmonton, um, but they I did sort of like a virtual tour online. I haven't been in there, but it looks like it's uh, very they're very focused on um, maybe electronics and programming, so it doesn't look like they have as nearly as amount of equipment that you mentioned, but yeah, uh, like less fabrication and less yeah, it seems yeah. a little more focused uh, on the other end, but uh I still want to check it out at some point. You should. Um, I think you'll make some good connections. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I was like, I should just do it regardless because, first of all, um, you know, just to get out and like build things. I think I was reading um, something that uh, 
you wrote not too long about ago about how you know once you started really working full time after graduation, you sort of fell into the loop of uh, you know work, repeat, sleep, you know, like, yeah. and, and you stopped like creating and, and I kind of felt like I've fallen into that a bit too. And plus moving here, I've only been here two years, so I've met very few people. So I just need to get out and do those kind of things. Yeah. I was shocked like how deep the depression got when I stopped, like when I, I felt like I was being productive, like, you know, I was working every day and I was like having social engagements every night of the week. I was exhausted all the time, but I wasn't actually like creating anything um and so i set aside like every month i take on like one or two projects um and this summer it kind of got away from me and i stopped doing stuff and again i got depressed again but it's amazing how fast like you snap out of it once you just like keep yourself fully engaged and focused and like oriented towards solving a certain problem that you're solving for fun um that's just like better than any therapy i think for me but yeah, that was, I think, a really important moment for me um, earlier this year. And that's actually why I launched Electro Bureau, which I think your tweet referenced. It's a, it's a gaming blog um, that I, it's more like a zine. Like we release, every three months, we release an issue with four stories. Um, I learned CSS and HTML. I code it all by hand. I write the like uh, XML feed, like, by hand. Um, and I add like fun little surprises in there for people who use RSS because I still use and love RSS and think it'll never go away. But yeah, yeah, it's totally handcrafted, um, which is kind of a weird, I don't know. It's a weird way to put that, but I've typed out like, you know, every single tag, every single span and div and P, (laughs) um, and every style. So, that's excellent. It's, it's a it's a beautifully crafted site. I was going to comment on that. I really liked oh, it. I was you. checking it out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I want something that I I, I still am kind of like too scared to dip my toe into JavaScript and you know try to learn how to do something <laughs> like flashy. But you can do enough with just CSS. So I might just try to keep it simple. I think. Yeah, that's. I had no idea. I knew that you were trying to learn some of that, but I also. Um, the site, uh, when I went there and I was reading it, it totally reminded me of, um, you actually, uh, Tony turned me on to, um, scroll kit when that came out and I just thought, Oh, this must be like another iteration of that. But I didn't realize you handcrafted it. Wow. That's funny. The reason I, the reason I did it by hand was because I was trying to use scroll kit to do it and I just couldn't do certain things. Um, and I was like, well, this can't be that hard. So I made like a simple website and scroll kit. Which, if if you Scrollkit got shut down, unfortunately, and the owners didn't like open source it or anything, they just kind of mm. like trashed everything, mm. and they work for WordPress, I think now. Um, but it was basically like GeoCities on crack. Like you could do really <laughs> incredible parallax scrolling effects, and um, like their claim to fame was they got sued by uh, the New York Times because the New York Snowfall, that story that like you know started the parallax scrolling craze, yep. it's like. Yep. They recreated it in like 30 minutes using scroll kit. It's just like dra- drag and drop. Um, you specify like at what point you want a JavaScript effect to happen, when you want it to end. And you can make like really beautiful like uh, sites. And the way it was laid out was just huge 100% width divs, just like a series of them one after another. So you put everything just on one page. Um, 
And that aesthetic, really, I loved it. Um, and I tried to work with it. And I was like, I can probably do this on my own. So that's what I've been trying to do. But yeah, that's it's actually based on uh, Scroll Kit, but without any of the job script. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, I actually, <laughs> I recently this week uh, decided that um, because I have multiple projects going on and uh, such that maybe I just really need like a landing page, like, you know, about Chris sort of page to point to all my other projects online. And then I started thinking, I'm I'm thinking of this while I'm working and I'm like getting mm-hmm. focused on it and saying, okay, no, I got to concentrate on work right now. Yeah. And I said, I said, okay, you know, maybe to save myself some time, I'll just do like aboutme.com or flavors.me or something like that. Don't and do it. Here's what you should do. Set an, if something <laughs> like that happens again, open your calendar, set an alarm for 5.30 or wherever you get home and put buy a domain, like 5.30 p.m. And then do it. Like just do it exactly when the reminder comes up. And you have to set like concrete, achievable, like quantifiable yes. steps. Yes. There's no, like you won't, don't do it about me. You won't learn anything if you do that, I think. It'll just be like, you know, it'll just be an about me page. You should do it yourself. And here's no, the I- secret. You don't actually have to buy web hosting. You can host it for free on Google App Engine. I think they don't want you to do that, but you can totally get like <laughs> practically unlimited space. And you could host like just normal web pages on it. I think it's supposed to be for, you know, startups and stuff, but you can have free hosting on it. Um just point your domain there. Yeah, I um I actually had thought that after I played with uh, flavors.me for a while I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be happy unless I do this myself. So <laughs> cool. So I was like, okay, I just have to set this aside and get work done and then that'll be my next uh next thing after fixing some logos and things. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, that's that that like next action philosophy is definitely the the way that I get most things done. Like I once as soon as I get that anxiety of like, oh, I don't this project seems too big, I just like scrap that, figure out the very next thing that I can do on it, write that thing down somewhere and then move on and go do something else and then I can come back and I'll have a concrete thing that I can do like you said, and usually that will just get a ball rolling and I'll just start rolling on something. Yeah, but I think beyond that, um, like, I need an exact time to do it. And if I don't do it at that time, it'll end up in my inbox and it'll be buried under like 500 unread items and I'll never (laughs) ever do it. It's really like it's a personal shortcoming that I'm like coping with. But if I don't do something exactly when it comes across my desk, I'll never, never look at it again. Yeah, yeah. You put a little red flag on it and then you're like, oh, that red flag (laughs) is really going to remind me to take care of that. And then you realize there's like 270 messages with red flags on them. Right. So that's why I respond to emails seconds after I get them. It's either that or nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the I'm the same way when it comes to email. It like drives me nuts when there's like anything in my box. Like I'm not exactly at like inbox zero, but the stuff that's like the like fifteen ones that are sitting there are just like stuff that like, oh, maybe I should learn how to use smart folders someday. You know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so so there's not like anything like pressing in there. And then I usually just like once a month go through them and go, yeah, I still haven't figured it out. Like if I want to use smart folders, so bye. Um, but yeah, I, I am, it took me a long time to realize. Um, and it's just, of course, a general philosophy that I've created in my head. But, um, 
and I think I've talked about it on the show before, but I'm a, the kind of person who um, I, I really like to have the uh, <laughs> what am I looking for? The stability of like knowing what's going on and when it's happening, like the stability of a regular job or something like that. But inside of me, inside my brain and my heart, I'm totally a creative. And I've started to sort of do exactly what both of you are talking about. And so if I think of something right now, I just pop open Evernote and shove it in there and then just keep working so that like I can address these things when they come, because otherwise, you know, tomorrow morning, I'm going to be like, what was that thing that Paul said during the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) So I take like notes everywhere now and um, it's pretty crazy and, but it hasn't gotten too messy yet because I usually then go through them quickly. Oh, I just realized something, you guys, by the time we're done recording this, there might be a new country in the world. Scotland might be its own country. That is true. They're counting votes right now, and it looks like it's neck and neck. Wow. I saw, I'm saw. i sure you guys saw the tweet that said uh, it was 52 to 58%. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> It was a it was a it was a screen grab of CNN.com and they had I was it as ask if it was Fox News because that's common for them. Oh yeah, that is definitely common for them. No, at least they were giving the vote 110. percent That was the uh, classic joke, of course. <laughs> it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So well, I yeah, I... all this. Oh wait, go ahead. No, go ahead. Really, I was going to say I prepared a law lecture i don't know if you guys (laughs) wanted that or not but when we were talking about this beforehand you said that we could talk about something that i'm interested in and i ended up with like too much written down about copyright law so (laughs) oh we we love it when the guests prepare we should just let you go we should just let you run with it go for it yeah because i I didn't prepare I'm afraid I might like start monologuing. So <laughs> speak now or forever hold your peace. I guess we'll we'll try to interject with questions if we if we uh, you know if you get on too much of a roll and we feel like we have to stop you. Okay, please. I'm going to need that. Um, okay, so copyright law. Um, it's I studied it like very intensely in school. Um, it's why I went to law school. Um, it's just a really fascinating uh, current topic um, that touches every single person who uses the internet. Um, So I kind of dived in head first. Um, I mean, I think copyright itself is like very noble and the purpose for it and the result of it is mostly good. Um, Originally, copyright law, copyright is a copyright is basically if you break it, you know, if you break it down, it's the right to make a copy of something. It's not, it doesn't sound very complicated. Um, But originally that right was restricted just for the purpose of um, like halting dissent or uh, to stop like heretical like publish publications, um, and I found this out today that in I think like 1588 the Roman Catholic Church published the Index Librorum Prohibitorum, which is the very first banned books list, um, and they maintained it actually until 1966. But that's kind of like the first, you know, the first copyright. The church said you were not allowed to make copies of something. Um, uh, but then in 1710, I think, 
uh, is the year that uh, Great Britain passed the Statute of Anne, which is the first like modern copyright law. And it looks almost exactly the same as the copyright laws in effect today. Um, and the name of it, the whole name was an act for the encouragement of learning by vesting the copies of printed books in the authors or purchasers of such copies during the times therein mentioned. So the very, the way it starts is an act for the encouragement of learning, you know, like, right, right. Uh, right. Yeah. That's, you know, it's an incentive. They want to incentivize people to write things um, so that we can all learn from what they have to say. Um, and the founding fathers in the United States incorporated that into the Constitution, actually. The Constitution authorizes, like, very few laws directly to be created, um, explicitly anyway. Like, it, it, it allows, like, the creation of a postal service. But it does actually allow the creation of um, and regulation of patent and, trade, uh, patent and copyright law with uh, the express purpose of... Um, promoting the progress of science and the useful arts. So again, you know, we have, it's for the education of the public. You know, we want to further ourselves. We want to incentivize people to do intellectual work and to publish it. Um, but a stipulation that's in the statute of Anne and in the constitution is for limited times. Like copyright can't be perpetual. It has to be limited. Um, so that sounds, it sounds simple. It's like, you know, what are the rights that are in play here? It's, you know, the only thing that's being restricted is the right of one person to publish something or to make copies of something. But there's actually uh, – copyright is actually referred to as a bundle of rights. I'm getting – oh, my God. I'm re repeating things my law professor said. <laughs> but I was thinking about this and a lot of – like let's say there's a copyrighted book. A lot of people have an interest in that book. The author has an interest in making a living off of it. you know. But also do they, they have like – do they have moral rights? Like – if you use that book um, and you use the text from it and misconstrue it to endorse like radical fascism or like neo-Nazism, like well, and that's not at all what the author was trying to say. Like, does the author have a right to stop his work from being used in that way? You know, because mm. the the work is like an extension of the artist um, in a sense. Um, that is called moral rights. The, the idea that the author like has some inherent connection to the work, um, as something personal that they like gave birth to. Um, the United States has basically no sense of moral rights, but I thought this was interesting that Canada, <laughs> Canada does. And most of the EU does. Um, and so an example of something you could do here and not in Canada would probably be, um, in the United States, you can make a cover of a song, um, and you don't need permission to do it. You just pay like, a small fee to the original songwriter. You could use that song in a commercial for like, uh, you know, the neo-Nazi party or whatever, or um, use it for some heinous political end, like set a really racist, like, you know, commercial to it or something. And the artist would have no right to do anything about it. The artist like uh, doesn't have a right to stop you from using it in a way they didn't intend. Um, whereas in Canada, you have a right to control the association of your work what people associate it with and same thing in the EU. So you can actually restrict mm. how people use your work, even if it's not, um, even if they're not making unauthorized copies. Um, so back to the book that I, I bought, I also have a right in it because I bought it. I own it. It's a physical thing that I own. Um, I have rights in the property that I purchased. And then last of all, the, the country in which you live has sovereign rights. They have a right to censor content or to, to prevent things from being created that um, 
contradict the public interest, you know? Um, so that's, so, uh, you know, that's a lot of people who have one interest in this one book that I bought. Um, and so that really does make copyright law complicated. Um, but, uh, I think it makes it a fascinating, a fascinating, it encompasses like, you know, how societies relate to each other, how humans relate to each other, um, how we set boundaries, like what are we willing to like let be published and what are we not? Um, it tracks with technology, interestingly. Like it's actually, I think, um, this is dorky, but I think it's interesting to track amendments to copyright law through like the latter half of the 20th century as computer technology and video games were developing um, because copyright law is actually a really poor fit for both of those things. But um, it's interesting to see like us as a society try to cope with them through how we amended our copyright law. Um, but so... Two things that came up recently, um, things that are not copyright infringement um, that I feel should be, like things that, that clearly contradict the purpose of copyright law but that are not infringement, and then things that directly do infringe copyright law but that are not harmful and that should be permitted. So um, we'll start with the things that are, or that are infringement, fan works, fan art, um, you know, derivative culture that celebrates an original work because a fan loves it so much they can't contain their enthusiasm for it internally they need to externalize it somehow by you know writing fan fiction or hosting a convention or like putting up a fan site um these are things that are almost always copyright infringing if um a good example is do either of you have you heard of or do you play android netrunner it's a card game. I have heard of it, but uh, I, of course, am a uh, iPhone junkie, so I have not played it. Ah, um, oh, it's not actually on Android. The, it's yeah, actually the name heart. of the game is Android. Oh, Net. gotcha. Yeah, um, it's great. It, the game was originally designed by Richard Garfield, who also designed Magic, and basically, he was unsatisfied with Magic and wanted a game that had more reading your opponent, more bluffing more hidden information, so he developed this game. Um, and now a new company, Fantasy Flight Games, has revived it, um, and they license it from Wizards of the Coast. But it's brilliant. It's this wonderful cyberpunk game where one person plays as a runner, a hacker, basically, and the other plays as an evil megacorp, a gigantic uh, monolithic corporation <laughs> who does the most heinous <laughs> So... Um, like my corp, I play as NBN, who is basically if like Time Warner and News Corp and Comcast all merged, it would be NBN. They produce like <laughs> half of the half of the world's broadcast entertainment, and they operate all of the uh, like infrastructure. So they're surveilling everyone constantly. They're building like mon like these humongous marketing profiles. Um, they're they're like everything I hate in the world, but for some reason it's really satisfying for me to like. <laughs> take that on i don't know sure um maybe a psychologist psychologist in the in the audience can poke that apart a little bit but um and so the runner is trying to basically steal intellectual property from the corporation and score points and the and the corporation is trying to bring the intellectual property to fruition by developing projects um like one of nbn's most popular they're called agendas. One of the most popular agendas is called AstroScript Pilot Program, where they develop the technology to uh, 
to project advertisements onto the surface of the moon. So, um, and like once you do that, then it's easier to to you know promote all of your other agendas. So, <laughs> um, as it nor as it naturally would be. So the flavors wonderful. The mechanics are great. People love the game, and the universe is so rich that people really want to get involved. And people don't just like post their decks online. They like get in character and post like earnings calls from the corpse, like explaining how their deck works, <laughs> why it works, um, evidence that it works. Right. And there's like a really in, in, interesting, like flourishing community of people who play. Um, and these decks and the descriptions are all hosted on a website called Netrunner DB, or they were. Um, but the game's publisher just shut it down yesterday um, because they claimed, I think the claim was that the flavor text was copyright protected, um, which that claim is kind of murky. It, it may not be like the, flavor text at the bottom probably is but the actual card text like that mechanically explains what a card does those are game rules and typically not um protected by copyright law the rules to a game are not copyrightable but so like if i sold a chessboard that had a beautiful design and you copied it then like you know exactly every detail then it would be infringement but if you just you know if i invented chess let's say but then let's say you just got a black and white board and generic pieces and you sold it. That's not infringement. Um, so the flavor text, um, I think, is what is triggering the infringement uh, claim. So they shut down this website um, on the basis of trademark infringement, which is super unfortunate. And the community is, is enraged about it. Right. Like, it clearly doesn't detract from the company's uh, bottom line. And if anything, it like, encourages people to play more. It shows them like, oh, if I buy these cards, then I can build these decks. Like, I think I bought like thirty dollars worth of cards just because I couldn't build the decks I want. The the decks that I built on Netrunner DB, I couldn't build with the cards I had, so I wanted to complete those decks. And you know, um, it's just a really good planning tool. And the the comments from other people telling you tweaks you should make or um, what they thought was good or not about your deck was really valuable. And there's a real community there. Um, yeah, and you know the company just shut it down without a thought in the span of like three days. So that was super unfortunate, and we're all pretty upset about it. But I think that's a good example of a missed opportunity. I think a company can capitalize on what, by the letter of the law, is copyright infringement, um, but clearly doesn't detract from the original um, the original copy being sold, and actually probably increases sales. Um, I mean, I think it's much wiser for a company to work with, you know, the people who are who are lining their pockets than it is to sue them or some cease and desist letters. But right, right. And that's, I mean, that's happened with a lot of with a lot of um, stuff online. Like uh, Nintendo last year, they shut down at the at Evo, the big fighting game tournament. Nintendo sent a cease and desist saying they couldn't broadcast matches of Super Smash Brothers Melee. Because it would be copyright, it would be an authorized uh, uh, performance of a copyrighted work, and it would be like if people who do let's plays on YouTube, that's yep. copy, that's like at its core, that's copyright infringement. That's all it is. But it also makes people buy games, like and it gets people right. involved, and they want right. to get their friends to play, and it's really marketing. It's not really like you know, if anything, it's helping. Um, so that's you know, I think. They're coming around. I feel like they've embraced Nintendo has embraced that. Maybe Fantasy Flight games will too, but um, right now it's kind of sore, and people are 
you know, people are dropping out of the game because they just don't like the way the company is handling their their intellectual property. Um, Disney used to be notorious for this, for um, shutting down people who, uh, you know, just love Disney. An example is in Florida, I, I had to find, look up the original, like, AP news story. In 1989, Disney uh, sued three daycares in the state of Florida because they had murals inside of them of like that incorporated Disney characters, hmm. which wow. is, I know, it's like, if a kid see like the kid is going to ask who these characters are, and then they're going to want to see more of them. Like it's easy to right. see how that could like result in revenue, you know. And it's not like a kid wants to watch a Disney movie, but they they don't want to anymore because they look at Disney characters, you know, every day. <laughs> it's like that's not how it works. Yeah. Uh, but actually, it seems like I mean, I guess when you have jillions of dollars and you can hire analysts and economists, you get a little smarter. And Disney actually is now super welcoming and accommodating of fan works. Um, A good example is Frozen. They really, really capitalized on the viral potential of that movie. I checked earlier, there are over 12 million YouTube videos that are either remixes, um, just people talking about the movie, uh, people performing the songs from it and recording themselves performing it and reenacting scenes from the movie. it's astounding how much fan input there has been. Um, and, you know, Tumblr and everywhere. Frozen was humongous this year. And it's, as a result, it's Disney's highest grossing film in history. So um, I think there's a lot to say for, you know, the potential. If you make something good and people want to share it, that's not a bad thing. Um, yeah, I think it, I think some of it boils down to um, whether it's a whether it's a corporation or, or an original author, um, and it kind of gets back to that idea of of moral rights, but kind of wanting to control the context in which that work that they either created or are profiting from um, is is being talked about. It's sort of a control the message kind of a thing, and. Right. Unfortunately, like in the case of in the case of the game, right? Mm-hmm. It, it seems like it's obvious in retrospect that the obvious that the that the course of action you should take is to either sponsor this website because you've got fans who are excitedly interacting with each other and that's encouraging them to continue playing the game. Like that's giving it that's giving the game more life in and of itself, right? Right. Um, and so they should either be, you know, sponsoring that site or purchasing that site uh, to keep it running and to and to help stay ahead of, you know, let's say they release some kind of a, um, you know, a pack in the future that fundamentally changes the rules in some way and some of the fans don't like it. You know, they could try to help control that message a little bit more by participating with these sites instead of shutting them down, right? Right, right. And that's the that's the lesson that Disney's learning too, right? Let's not shut these people down. Let's not make them feel unwelcome. Let's let them create a community, but then also participate in that community where possible so that we can kind of direct their energy towards positive things and keep them engaged. Right, and I think that's what they do with... Um like their social media presence. I think this is what Nintendo is doing too. I think they're really following in Disney's footsteps. Um, they, you know, they have a very controlled social media presence and they prompt fans to do certain, like take a picture of yourself doing this, this or this. And then they'll like retweet or repost things that conform with like, you know, the messaging they want that's consistent with 
Um, and, I, you know, people troll them and do things like that, too, that are not what Nintendo wants to see. But then Nintendo just floods it out with, like, other really good content. And I think that's um, – I think Animal Crossing, that's a good example. So uh, sure. yeah. they, they were super involved in the social media presence of Animal Crossing. And I don't think I've ever seen a game have more presence on social media than Animal Crossing did last summer. Every single person I knew was playing it, posting uh, screenshots on Twitter like every day. Um, I saw such an incredible amount of like creativity and output as a result of Nintendo. Like instead of like locking it down, they totally facilitated and encouraged social sharing and um, fans actually engaging with each other about the content instead of just engaging with the content. And I think that really paid off. That game sold like tons of copies. Um, but so yeah, I think they're learning. They've learned that lesson, I think. And the same way they they did like a Smash Brothers tournament at E3 this year. Like that's they would never do that before. Um, so it looks like they're coming around. Um, maybe they're taking a cue from Disney. Maybe that's encouraging. Um, but I feel like you know, hopefully, the Netrunner guys will too. But we'll see. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I don't even know, you know, the, the question always becomes like, well, then how can we like change the system to make it work better? But the way that things move so quickly today, it's like I, our legal system isn't equipped to handle the changes that quickly. <laughs> right. And I don't think there's no way, I mean, there's no way that the law could be written in such a way that it could distinguish between like a copy um, you know, like a, if someone was printing and selling T-shirts with the whatever her name is from Frozen on them, like that's like there's no law that could distinguish that from someone like filming a video like of them singing Let It Go. Like there's no way you could write the law um, in such a way to draw this line. So I, it really is up to companies to just not enforce it. And there's no there are absolutely no ramifications for someone failing to enforce copyright law. That's a common misconception um, that, you know, like if you don't enforce it and you don't police it, then you'll lose your IP. But that's not true. Copyright law sticks around for 95 years if you're a corporation or your lifetime plus 70 years if you're an individual person. And the only way it'll go away is if you actively um, give it away. Um, if you license it, like let's say you license it under a, the Creative Commons Zero license is basically like putting it in the public domain if if you do that um i mean even then that's revocable i mean there's no way you can like lose your copyright by failing to enforce it um that's just not how copyright law works that's how trademark law works um if you're if you're if you're you know if your brand gets sufficiently um diluted and genericized then you do lose your rights but copyright law does not and companies really have nothing to lose from not enforcing their, you know, not being aggressive with their fans. Um, so yeah, hopefully I, it'll chill out a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I almost feel that way uh, about much of the laws, not only copyright laws, like there's not enough like common sense, like, you know, um, like you're saying, like the companies just need to like say, okay, let's not enforce this, but let's enforce that, you know, right. and pick and choose. And I, I think, um, you know, the law is the letter of the law, but I think like we often have legal cases in courts because um, 
somebody is enforcing the letter of the law when in actuality you could just use some common sense, right? But we're so afraid of setting a precedence. Like, uh-oh, we just set a precedence that, you know, you can now do this. And so we've got to take, like, these people to court, this, this uh, you know, nonprofit organization to court because they use, like, uh, a picture of Mickey Mouse on the wall, right? <laughs> right. Well, then this actually brings me to another point. Um, like, I don't think this is a perfect – like, let's say every company realizes, like, when it's advantageous to allow infringement and when it's not, and they let it off slide. Well, like, let's say I make, um, you know, a video of me singing Let It Go from Frozen or whatever, and it's, like, goes viral and people love it. If, like, if they wanted to, if I ever cross Disney, they could come after me. There's, they could, you know, sue me for willful statute, willful copyright infringement, which carries a statute, like, they don't have to prove any damages. There's, uh, they could just get $250,000 from me, like, because of the way copyright law is currently written, um, so it, it's kind of risky, um, you know, because it still leaves fans open to vengeful companies. Uh, but again, that's bad PR. Um, I, I really do think that Frozen is the future, that companies will embrace this. Like, as they see, they see how much money it makes them, um, they clearly are not going to try to shut it down. Um, you know, that's what companies are, is money-making machines. So I think eventually someone smart in every company will point it out, um, I don't think this. Like, I don't think the Netrunner DB thing. I don't think that would happen in the future. I think we're just at a point now where we're realizing the power of social media, which sounds like such a stupid thing to say, but I think companies are realizing it. I think we all realize it, but I think companies are now starting to realize it. Um, and, and I mean, I mean, that's way more than like you know just having a Facebook page. I think they're actually um, using it in a smart way. You know. Yeah, and see, it almost. I feel like sometimes I'm a little scared that they're realizing it as well because it's sort of um, the way that social media works is is so quick and in such like you know burst that it's like oh man like I can't believe they did that to Netrunner and then like next week like something else will be viral and now we'll forget this story you know right right so there's um, a danger of that too but I don't think. I mean, I don't think I'll forget it. Like, I think if someone just randomly read the story, they would. But I think the people who are most invested will not forget that, you know? Like, I I still remember, and I haven't bought, a like, a Sony console since. Since Sony had that root kit that got installed automatically every time you put in a Sony CD into your Mac or PC. Like, it installed spyware on your computer to enforce DRM. This was in, like, 2003 or something. But I haven't, yeah, I, mean, I remember that. I yeah. haven't bought a Sony console since that because, um, I, I mean, I, you know, I played PlayStation 2 every day. Like, I, I played so many RPGs and some of my best gaming memories were on the PlayStation 2. But that just stung me so bad that, like, I wouldn't, I just wouldn't, you know, and I won't forget it. That's just, like, a really shitty thing to do when they yep. haven't made it. Like, you know, they didn't apologize. They didn't, you know. So... I think the people to whom it matters most won't so easily forget, but I think the news cycle will move on, you know, and I think the verge or whatever stupid like tech blog posts about it, like, you know, they'll move on and their readership will move on. But I think the people, the actual people who, where the money comes from won't forget so easily. Yeah, that's, that's very true. It's, um, the, the online community is, uh, it's really fascinating to to watch how things uh, shake out. 
definitely. Um, I know, like, you've been uh, tweeting a lot lately about uh, the whole, like, uh, Gamergate situation. Oh, God. Yeah. And, (laughs) you know, and that's what I sort of, like, that's what happens in my head when I even just think about, like, how much of it is sort of, like, uh, just sort of uh, blown in and out of, like, social feeds. It's like, oh, like, like, I, I want, like you know, a positive outcome, but it's like, I don't want to call attention to those that are using it negatively, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't even think like, let's take a detour to this. Like the things that they actually want to be addressed, like the actual legitimate grievances are not like real things. It's like, they don't want like journalists to hang out together at conferences like that's what industry people do in every single industry in the entire world like that's how industry works like you make connections with people and then those people know someone else that you can interview for a story like it doesn't mean that people are getting uh, unfair coverage it means that um you know that's how any industry works like any entertainment industry works that way like uh, movie like, film critics know each other, actors know each other, directors know each other, and they all, you know, it's all like a huge incestuous melting pot. That doesn't mean that like they can never criticize each other, or it just means that's how social relationships work. But there are like real things that could be grievances, like EA paying like like Game Informer half a million dollars or whatever to run like a massive ad campaign to give a game a good review and to feature it on the cover. Like that is the kind of thing that you think game would be concerned with, but they're not. They only seem to be concerned with things that involve women and people of color. So, um, I mean, I clearly have my gripes and I hope I didn't upset any of your listeners, but (laughs) it seems like an illegitimate movement. There are, there are problems in the game industry, but their gamer game has nothing to say about them. So, yeah, and that's what I was sort of uh, getting at is um you just it's weird because you think wow, worldwide web like, you know, um <laughs> altruistically you start thinking like we're we're going to learn about each other and we're going to like solve problems together and instead it's all of these and it's not totally true. It's it is happening like I I just said, but in other instances it's like People who have sort of jaded views or views that maybe Chris doesn't agree with, um, those people are finding each other on the web. And then that gets a lot of coverage or goes viral because, like, someone is in the tea party and doesn't think, like, school should have lunches. You know, it's just like, (laughs) it's like, yeah, I guess the internet's good for, like, finding your own, finding your own, no matter what that means. But I guess we have to just accept what that means. Yeah. Ugh. And knowing that you're you you are going to end up exposing yourself at some point to a polarizing opinion that somebody else has, um, right. and right. they're you know they they still feel like uh, even though they're on Facebook under their own name, they still feel like the internet is this anonymous place where they can just you know spew whatever uh, yeah, like hateful thing comes out of their mouth. You know, like congressmen will post the most up. <laughs> on their Facebook wall, <laughs> really racist memes and stuff. It's just like, oh, my God. I just like, yeah. Uh, yeah. God. Um, oh. oh, but the second part, um, not to move us along too quickly, but we're, you know, closing in on an hour, and I feel bad we're keeping everyone with a long uh, 
copyright <laughs> law class. Um, this gets me a little fiery. This is something that's not infringement, but clearly, uh, you know, violates the purposes for which we established copyright law in the first place. And that's clo- video game clones. Um, a good example is, have either of you played or seen Ridiculous Fishing? It's an iOS game. I have not. Oh, you should pull it up. It's beautiful. It's like this stunning, <laughs> like, like triangular. It's like triangular pixel art. Um, the colors are very saturated. It's beautiful. The gameplay concept was completely new. You basically drop a lure down and you guide it back and forth to try to avoid fish as long as you can. But then once you hit a fish, it starts rising and you want to catch as many fish as you can on the way back up. And then when your lure gets all the way to the surface, you fling it in the air and shoot the fish with a shotgun or a rifle or whatever and try to kill as many as you can, and then your points are based on how many fish you killed. Um, so this company, Vlambeer, was putting the finest, like, polishing touches on this game for, like, a year. They won, like, they won, they showed at the Independent Games Festival. Um, everyone was really excited and anticipating this game. Well, like, two months before it was released, someone just released a game called Ninja Fishing that was basically the same game, but it was reskinned to be, like, a ninja. Mm. And instead of, like... A shotgun. He had like a blowgun, and and it was just like a clear one to one knockoff. Um, so, if I was an independent game developer and I wanted to get into iOS development, and I saw that, why would I be? Why would I invest years of my life and professional work to be scooped? Like when someone sees me at a turn, you know, at a festival, and then just releases my game before I have a chance to, just like with a different skin on it. Um, Another one was Triple Town, and then there was another game that it was that knocked it off, I think. But there was a rash of these, I think, in 2012. And uh, the developers of Ridiculous Fishing, they didn't release the game. They like they were became incredibly depressed. They stopped working on it altogether. They eventually released it a year like behind schedule because they just were like so upset about it. They didn't want to play it, uh, or didn't want to work on it anymore. Um, it clearly was like demoralizing for them, but eventually they did and they released it to critical accolades and I think they had good sales, but they almost didn't do it at all. Um, and you know, who knows how that has affected how they develop games now? Like maybe they develop fewer games, maybe they keep things secret. Um, which, you know, the point of copyright law is to promote, to encourage people to share things, um, for all right. of our benefit. Yep. Um, but cause it's not, it's yeah. So uh, another one from this year, and I, I get on people's case about this. Like if I see them playing the cloned one and they don't know about the original one, I get really like sanctimonious and unpleasant about it. <laughs> but so 1024 and 2048 are very popular phone games, but they're actually a ripoff of a game called Threes. Threes. Yep. And a lot of people don't know that. And Threes has so much like character and charm and flavor. It's such it's an such excellent a, game. It's so good. And the concept is like so simple. But I wouldn't have thought of it in a million years, and neither would have the guys who made 1024 or 2048. Um, so they released these like terrible ad-supported, ugly games. There's hundreds. If you search 2048 in your app store, you'll probably see thousands of like knockoffs of it. Um, yep. And, you know, I have no idea how many copies Threes sold, but I'm sure it's like nowhere near what it would have been if if these people didn't rip them off. Um, but it's worth saying that none of these instance, incidences are copyright infringement. Um, it's only copyright infringement if you actually use like game systems and game rules are not uh, copyrightable, yeah. which is which is complicated. But 
Um, if he had used like the artwork of the tiles from threes, then it would right. be then more that, of a problem. Yeah. Yes, then that would have been. Um, or if in ridiculous fishing, if they used the same sprites for the fish or something. Sure. Or, yeah. You know, or if they used like a custom design, custom designed typeface, then that could be like a problem. But if they just use like you know Comic Sans and put a ninja in the game, <laughs> then it's not in any way infringing. And Apple and other app store vendors want nothing to do. You know. Yeah, because they don't want to become selling, right. Well, it's not. I think they're making a lot of money off of it. Um, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, they're selling like jillions of copies of. They sold so many. I mean, this is after it left the store, but after Flappy Bird left and people released, and even while it was still there, people did like stupid gimmicky knockoffs with like you know, uh, yep. instead of a bird, it's a bear or something, and 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 people were buying those games, and people were clicking on the ads in those games and apple made a hefty sum and google did too you know because i don't think uh flappy bird was even on the uh google play um so there's no incentive for vendors to restrict these or curtail these because they're making money hand over fist on them um but the original developers aren't you know they have no recourse they can't sue for anything um, there's no wrong being done. So, I mean, I don't think the law should be changed either with fan works or with knockoffs. But I think, um, like, we should use social pressure to encourage app store vendors to crack down and to to pressure Steam to crack down on, on this. So when you see, like, bad faith knockoffs of games, I think you should bring it to the attention of, of vendors. But I don't think, I mean, again, there's no way copyright law Copyright law can't include game mechanics because that would mean, let's say, like Donkey Kong was was copyrighted and the jumping mechanic was copyrighted. Um, yeah, right. You know, you know, like how would you? Uh, it would have ruined the industry. So it makes sense that you can't copyright mechanics, but I think there are extra legal solutions to both of these things. I think we should, uh, you know, use our clout as consumers um, and as fans and enthusiasts to protect people who make stuff that's really valuable, that actually is contributing to the conversation and to, to culture. And people who are making lasting good things that are being um, steamrolled by junk like that, oh, it's heart-wrenching to me and it makes me so fired <laughs> up. Um, right. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, it is, uh, it's hard as a developer to come up with something that's um, perfectly original. And, and I would say when you look at when you look at like the threes at twenty forty eight situation, um, the thing the thing that's tragic about that to me is that twenty forty eight is so clearly an inferior game. Like right. it's, there's there's a very simple methodology that you can pretty much just keep playing it and playing it and playing it and just rack up your score higher and higher until maybe you find yourself in in a situation where you know you finally fill the board. Uh, whereas threes is much more challenging just because of the way that they designed the game mechanic, right? The mechanics are extremely similar, but there's right. certain ways that threes behaves that makes it very easy to accidentally fill the board because you weren't thinking about how things were going to place. Whereas right, 2048, yeah, the, one and two, the one and two make a big difference. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 So, um, so, you know, my thinking, my thought on it is, that's great. If you're a developer and you look at a game and that inspires you to make something similar, that's great, but you need to bring something new and interesting to the table as well. Not just make Flappy Bird uh, less pixelated and, you know, and maybe gloss up the images or something like that. 
actually um, create a new dynamic to the game, some new fundamental rule that changes the way that it's played so that people could see that it's similar. Hey, this is like Flappy Bird. But at the same time, there's this new element to it that makes it different and better than Flappy Bird. I think, uh, you know, we we need to encourage, we, we're trying to encourage people to innovate, right? That's kind of the point of this, right. of copyright law is let's put ideas out there, protect the people who made them, but then also encourage society to improve, to to have that be documented and improve on it in the future. Yeah, and I think that's that's uh, why like there should no, never be like a law made to to stop knockoffs because then you also do stop um, actual improvements. You know, um, like X plus one, you'd never be able to make that. Like, uh, yeah, yep. yeah, you know, yeah, like, like you sh- shouldn't be able to maybe like you know copyright round corners. Right. And so I guess an example I could use could be like uh, uh, Bejeweled. Let's say Bejeweled was the very first Match 3 game ever made. I don't think it was, but um, let's assume it was. Uh, I think like, oh gosh, what was Oh, Puzzle Quest. I think Puzzle Quest like takes the idea like three steps further and makes it like a really engaging, um, interesting game um not that bejeweled isn't but it's 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 a it, they've improved it so much that it becomes a different game and people don't play this and say or people don't play like this and think that they're playing bejeweled and are they're not having the same experience and they don't think of them as the same games like i still play both of those games um but they become different i think in a consumer's mind um and one doesn't become a substitute for the other um I think that's when we run into problems. When someone makes like a one-for-one uh, copy, like a reskinned copy, that that yep. uh, you know, yep. Um, and I mean, guess yeah, twenty forty-eight. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I think it's uh, it was. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it so was, that one's it's really clearly a, a it's clearly a clone, though. I mean, it came uh, out five days after. right yeah right and and the guy it's interesting the guy who made it i always thought this was like fascinating the guy who made 23s existed because he thought he was knocking off 1024 um (laughs) so that's like a good example like that's how you like he wasn't even aware of the original creation like that's like what the problem is i think um so you know i i am i champion like little guys who do things that none of us thought of before and um so yeah knockoffs really drive me up a wall and game clones are just like oh god yeah yeah everybody tries to make tetris as a as a programming experiment right but you know right. at in those kinds of cases attribution is important so that people know hey right. you know this is an experiment i'm 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 making a copy of this thing um please go look at that because it's better <laughs> yeah yeah um but you know what i think this is the real gamer game <laughs> just kidding um but okay that's the end of my law lecture oh wait no the last thing last thing uh copyright misuse um <laughs> this will be fast uh but this has been this has been happening a lot lately a good example during the 2012 election i can't remember who the musician was but they were really pissed off that the gop was using their song in one of their campaign commercials it's someone who absolutely hated mitt romney um, who was a lifelong liberal, um, and they were outra- outraged about this. Um, like, unfortunately, at least in the, in the United States, you can't do anything about it. If the 
if it's duly licensed, you can't. Um, but I think they tried to pull it down. Um, and oh, you know what? I think it was NPR. I think they were using like a clip of an NPR story in a GOP commercial. And NPR was furious and trying to take down the GOP video, and they couldn't because it was deemed fair use. But I think that's a good example of misusing uh, copyright for basically for censorship purposes. Um, yeah. Yep. And uh, what's another example? Oh, the Church of Scientology is famous for this. Whenever people write things that are critical of the church and incorporate language from like their scripture, you know, from Dianetics or whatever, mm-hmm. they get sued with a copyright. They, they first they get a DMCA takedown, which is the fastest way to get something off the internet, and then they get sued into oblivion by the church with endlessly deep pockets. Um, but uh, these, you know, that's not what copyright is for. Like, I guess oh, the thing that ties the entire thread of this together is why do we have copyright? You know, it's to to prompt to propagate ideas to encourage creation of new works, to inform the public, to build a common culture. Um, and these three things, I think, all, you know, uh, pulling down fan works, misusing copyright, and, and you know, skirting the law by making knockoffs, I think all contravene that. And we should take a look at them. And if we can, I mean, we can't fix them. I really don't think we can fix them legislatively. Uh, the, cop- copyright, the Copyright Act is ridiculous. Um, and copyright law is mostly the same in every country because of uh, international treaties, um, right? Yeah, the Berne Convention. So uh, the law is the same almost everywhere. Um, so we can't. I don't think we can change that. But I think we can use like social pressures to change how people apply it and enforce it. Um, but I think that's really our only hope at this point. Which is a little bleak, but I think it's also okay. I, because I think that theory also, you know, it invests in the idea that we're all decent people and we all, um, you know, we as a society came up with copyright law because we all agreed on something. You know, we all agreed we want more ideas. We want people to make creative new works. Um, I think we all still believe that. Uh, and I think once we get past these technological hurdles, we'll be able to see that more clearly. You know, hopefully we can all work together and and you know yeah and I, people that are making the culture we love i i do feel like the the concept has shifted a bit now that um it, i guess it's not even that modern of a concept anymore but um the the fairly recent concept that um you know corporations are people and thus can hold um can hold things like copyrights, right? Like a like a copyright can be assigned. Um, can't is that is that the way it works? A copyright can be assigned uh, and held by a corporation, not just an individual. Like I, yeah, copyright can actually be like a, a corporation can be the original creator of something. Uh, right. Like that's how most movies work. They're works for hire, where a company hires people like a sound guy, actors, directors, yep. and they all are together making a film. Uh, for the company and the original, you know, the copyright vests in the company. Um, so, and I think that's important. I mean, I think uh, um, we because otherwise we would have the sound guy like suing. We would have each individual actor <laughs> yeah, suing. Like right. every time they played the movie somewhere they didn't want it played, we would have every single crew member, you know, yeah. would have a right to yank it. And actually, this has come up 
up. This is actually a hot topic recently because do you remember the Innocence of Muslims video, the thing that started the riots that eventually ended in Beng- the Benghazi attack? It was that like yeah. really offensive video um, characterizing all Muslims as violent um, like a- animals, basically. Right. That the the actress who was in it successfully got it taken down like from YouTube and taken down from like everywhere across the internet by claiming she had a right in her performance, which that's never how film has ever worked. I think the judge just kind of fudged his opinion um, just because this woman was clearly, you know, distressed. It was, I'm sure she was like on the receiving end of threats um, sure. and all kinds of unpleasantries. But like on the other hand, like that's not what the law, that's not how the law works. Like every actor doesn't have a right to yank the movie like anytime they want to. Um, so yeah, that's actually kind of become a hot button issue lately, but, uh, but yeah, I think companies owning copyrights, that's, that's, you know, that's how a lot of industries work. And I think that's generally okay, but, um, but yeah, no, thanks. Uh, thanks for, uh, doing all that. Um, I appreciate it because it it is such a cloudy subject, but uh, obviously it also fires you up. <laughs> yeah, I so, mean, uh, it's I mean these are like real personal, like it's a very human area of the law. I think it's, um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if it gets besides like family law. I don't know if there's any area of the law that's more intimate. You know, it's like people's people are choosing to share their like private ideas that they've been working on for however long. We want to encourage them to do that. Um, we're all working together to build a common culture. Uh, I don't know. It's very, I think it's not as stodgy as a lot of people might think it is, but yeah, to create is something that's, that's pretty fundamentally human and to be able to be able to share that and have some, you know, modicum of, of protections available to you so that you can share it and, and hope that it stays intact and gets to the audience that you're trying to find is, is an important thing. That's what it's, that's uh, definitely a portion of why it's there and, and why as society copyright law is, um, is an important thing. But to your point, you know, creating almost none of the culture that we have today is something that is entirely original. Everybody draws inspiration off of something. And on some level, almost everything that's produced is a mashup in some way, or at least at a minimum inspired by, um, some, you know, the, even if it's as simple as, Oh, this is the, the classic, the hero's journey, right? None of the names are the same, but this is the story that we all know. Well, it comes from the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun, and it's true. Um, nobody invented – like if you think you're telling an original story, you're not. Someone's told it before. You, uh, the story you're telling is the result of all of your cultural conditioning, all of your influences. Yep. Um, so, yeah, there's nothing wholly unique, but we want to reward people for combining them in interesting new ways, I think. That's it for tonight's episode of Montreal Sauce. Uh, thanks for joining us. Next week, we will have part two of our interview with Tony Sarkis, uh, at Tone underscore Def, D-E-F, on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at Paul D, and uh, my co-host, as always, Chris Sickinga, Sick Days, S-I-K-K-D-A-Y-S, on Twitter. Uh, and, of course, you can look up the show notes for this uh, episode at montrealsauce.com. 
that's it. So we'll see you next week. All right.